Murder is defined as the unlawful, premeditated killing of one human being by another. However, being charged and convicted of murder isn't always as simple as a definition. With that said, let's talk murder. Welcome and thank you for tuning in to another episode of Let's Talk Murder with Diamond Kisan. I am your host, Diamond Kisan. For those who may not know, Let's Talk Murder with Diamond Kisan is a crime-based podcast that takes an inside look at the crime from the side of the accused. In each episode, we go beyond the headlines and get up close and personal to the story via the words of the individual charged with the crime. On this episode of Let's Talk Murder with Diamond Kisan, we explore the case of John Hudson. With the case of Mr. Hudson, I want to take you on a journey. I want to take you on a journey from case to conviction to life behind bars. This is this is a different look from how we normally do things. So, get ready. Let's talk murder. Mr. Hudson is incarcerated for murder with intent to kill. Now, with his case, I'm not going to read from the headlines. I'm going to... Let Mr. Hudson paint us a picture because I think, based on the headlines, I've been able to find a lot of them are very vague and don't really give that in-depth kind of analysis of the case that we like to look at. So let's just, let's take a look strictly this time from the view of Mr. Hudson and see what we have going on. Upon reaching out to Mr. Hudson, you know, normally I do my question and answer sessions with the accused. But with this instance, I asked Mr. Hudson to do me a favor. I asked Mr. Hudson to... Tell me a story. Tell me the story. Tell me the story in your words, how you would like for it to be told. And paint me a picture. Paint me a vivid picture of what took place. So let's begin. Mr. Hudson advises, Today I'm going to let you know what happened in my case from the beginning up until me being beaten and tortured at the notorious Chicago Police Station, Area 1 at 51st and Wentworth Avenue. What I recall most about the evening leading up to the crime, I was working that night. I was working for my parents at the funeral home. I remember my father telling me, Junior, make sure the place, funeral home, is clean for the funeral the next morning, and don't be out too late. You know it's bad out there. I already don't like your friends. It seems like every time you hang out with them, you seem to get into trouble somehow. What I had planned was to just finish working my duties and just go to the neighborhood lounge where we hang out in and have a few drinks with some of my so-called friends. Well, while at the lounge, a fight broke out and it involved me and four of my friends. I endured a fractured hand, which I had one of the dude's teeth in my hand, and I needed medical attention. But while we were deciding what to do, we went to the store to get two-fifths of Hennessy. While me and another one of the homies were in the store, two of them stayed outside. When we came outside, one of my older homies waved me over to where he was. A female and a dude, I don't know, were talking. He leaned in and said, take a ride with us. Dude right here trying to cop something, some rocks. So me and homie I was going to ride with got us two styrofoam cups full of the drink. And the other guys went their way. And me and one of the homies, a female, and dude that wanted the drugs, we got into the car and went on the low end to my homie's spot to get the drugs. While we were in the car, it wasn't much talking. I've been around guys who sold drugs. I've even hustled in the drug game a little. Well, when we got to my homie's spot so he could get his drugs, me, the female, and the dude stayed in the car. My homie came back. Him and the dude exchanged drugs for money. We drove around for a brief moment and dude parked in an alleyway. 
He then proceeded to try and smoke his drugs, to which I told dude, hey homie, get out the car and smoke that. I don't want to smell like that. As he got out the car and proceeded to smoke his drugs, me and my friend switched seats. I got in the back seat with the female and him in the front seat. When dude got back in the car, he was talking and moving funny, saying that shit ain't nothing, give me my money back. And then he tried to grab at my homie's pockets where I knew he had his pistol. My homie, a real hothead, then shot dude twice in his chest. Dude got out the car, stumbled towards the back of the car, and sat down. My homie then looked at me as if he was looking past me. At the same time, pointing the gun at me, saying, You ain't seen shit, right? To which I said, Nah, bruh, I ain't seen shit. We good. He then drove me to the emergency room in the neighborhood we started up in and said, Remember what I said. I was upset and furious at the same time because, first of all, he knew I was on parole and just came home from the joint. And two, he pulled a gun on me and basically threatening my life. And we kind of grew up together. So, yeah, I was mad as hell. I went to the hospital, got stitches in a TB shot, and had the hospital to call my then-girlfriend. I made it to her apartment, told her bits and pieces of what happened that night, but I never told her about the shooting that day. I fell asleep, woke up around 11. She said she needed to go to the grocery store, so I got dressed and we went down the street to one of my friend's houses that I was with at the lounge to see if I could use his car to go to the grocery store for a few hours and make a few errands. When we got to my homie house, I asked him, bro, let me use your car. Let me use your car. My girl needs to go grocery shopping. He said he just took his car to the shop to get brakes put on it, but... Big homie sleep in the basement. His keys are right there on the TV. He said it's the brown car. So when I got in the car, I noticed that it was the same car from the night before. I should have known better to even get back in the car, but my girlfriend at the time kept saying, come on, let's go. You know we going to the Blues Fest too, so we got to hurry up and come back. So on our way back from the grocery store, I parked on the street behind my parents' funeral home, and we walked the block over. I stopped at my parents' funeral home, washed the front windows, put a load of clothes in the washer, took out the trash, fed the dogs, and left. When we reached the street that we parked on, I noticed police everywhere and around the, and around the car we was in. So we halted for a brief moment, and my girlfriend at the time said what they were doing in homie car, and I replied and said, I don't know, I'm on parole, I ain't even supposed to go over here. So we headed back to the funeral home and was trying to figure out what we were going to do. While we were sitting there at the funeral home, the police came knocking at the front door. So I told one of the workers to not let them in and that the owner is not here and you ain't seen me. She did as I told her. She also said that the police wanted to question me about the car and... A murder to which I was blue. I was on parole. Now I was wanted for question for homicide. My cell phone rang. I answered, but I answered it, and it was my father. My father asked me what happened. I told him the truth about the incident. He said that he was going to call the police so that I could turn myself in with my attorney. I told my father, nah, that ain't gonna happen. So I left and went to the Blues Fest to clear my, my, my head. And after that, I went to where I got the car and let them know what had happened. They told me that the big homie wasn't there.
After leaving the homie's house, we went down the street to my then-girlfriend's apartment. I took a shower and then went to sleep. At around 5.30 a.m., we were awakened by the sound of someone trying to break the front door down, but we had a gate with a padlock on it. So my girlfriend told the officers that it was only her and her son. She then asked me what was going on. I told her that the big homie had shot somebody the night before over some drugs, and he pulled a gun on me and threatened to kill me if I said anything. The police played like they left all along. They were hiding to see if I would eventually come out. I tried to flee out the back door, but they were all over the place. They then broke the gate and was trying to break the back door down. I immediately called my father. He was telling me to just put the phone down. He's on his way and surrender myself because the police might mistake my cell phone for a weapon. Because a female named Latonya Haggerty had just been killed by the Chicago police for mistaking the phone for a weapon. By that time, the police had broken into the apartment and said, put the phone down, nigga, before we kill you, to which I immediately complied. But when I didn't comply quick enough, I was hit in the head inside of the face with the officer's gun. I was then handcuffed and shackled with leg irons and transported to the notorious Area 1 police station at 51st and Wentworth Avenue. Upon arriving at the police station, I was placed in an interrogation room where I was handcuffed to a ring in the wall and still had the leg irons on. I sat there in the interrogation room for what seemed like hours before I was questioned by the officers. I was questioned during many interrogations. I was beat, slapped, choked to the point where I lost consciousness during most of the interrogations when I wouldn't tell them what they wanted to know. I was beat during one particular interrogation that... I hit upside the head, and I believe that I went into a seizure. I remember waking up in the backseat of the police car, hog-tied, like, and transported to a hospital way, way across town. I stayed there for a few hours, and I tried to let the nurse know that I was being abused by the officers, but told the police, but she told the police what I had told them, like they knew one another, and I was then taken back to the police station. I was placed back in the interrogation room where I was handcuffed so tightly with handcuffs that I couldn't feel my fingertips. I was again questioned, beat, slapped, choked, and abused by the officers as to what I knew about the murder. Eventually, I told the police, hey, I got the car from one of my homies. I don't know what happened, but ask him. This where he lay his head at. Hours later, the officers came back with some photos partial blank papers, and said, this is your murder, you did it. Dude said that you did it, and today we're getting our man. I was again abused by the officers, and they were saying that I was a liar. This is my case, and if I wanted to go home for me to sign the photos of the people I knew, and sign at the bottom of some blank pieces of paper, to which I did. Hours later, which seemed like the next day, they placed me in a lineup. My co-defendant was first, a few guys in between us, then me, and another guy or probably two. Before the, the lineup, the officers made my co-defendant take his braids out. I picked out of the lineup as the initial shooter, charged and booked for first-degree murder. I was in the police station for about three and a half days. I was never allowed to call an attorney, use the restroom, or eat the entire time I was there at the police station. I signed those papers and photos under duress because I thought I was going home, like the officers said, but I didn't. I was charged for a murder I didn't do. 
Upon reading the transcripts and listening to trial testimony, I learned that one of the three eyewitnesses testified and said that he believed that a female had done the shooting with long flowing hair, but the police went to his house and showed him a photo of me right before the, the lineup. He said that the police showed him my photo before the lineup. My trial attorney asked the witness does he believe that a female did the shooting and his response was he don't know what to believe now. What I remember most about my bogus trial and the attorneys is the coerced eyewitnesses. And the other thing that sticks out is my jury asked for the eyewitness testimony and my judge wouldn't allow them to have it. He said for them to go off of their recollection. My trial was the first Friday before Easter, Good Friday. Well, it wasn't so good to me because I was found guilty of first degree murder. I don't believe that the evidence proved that I was the shooter because there was no gun found and the only evidence that they have is that I was in possession of a stolen vehicle and those photos and pictures I signed which turned out to be a pre-written confession that the police wrote out and said that I confessed. Again, reading through transcripts and listening to testimony, my father testified and said that the police called him and he said... I have been charged, and the police response was not yet. Give us about three hours. He should be charged by then. Now, if that don't sound like some kind of coercion, then what is it? I believe that my trial attorneys, Sam Adam Jr. and Sam Adam Sr., sold me out to beat another case in the same courtroom or just to collect 93000 that I paid them. I sat in the county jail almost five years, and out of five years, them attorneys only been to see me about ten times. They usually sent up-and-coming attorneys or paralegals, which made me think they wasn't trying their best to beat my case. The only thing that was ever presented in my case was my fingerprints was in the victim's car, along with some blood from the injury to my hand, and the pre-written statement that said that I confessed to the murder in a cup that had me and my co-defendant's fingerprints on it that was found on the crime scene. But if I could say anything at all to the public about this crime, it's that I'm innocent of murder, but I'm guilty of not doing more to prevent it. Since I've been incarcerated, my life, ha my life has been on ups and downs. I've lost many relatives during my time locked up, including my dear father, in 2016. That was the hardest pill to swallow. I still find myself breaking down about his passing because we were so close. I talked to my father every day up until he passed away on August 10th, 2016, on his and my mother's anniversary of 44 years of marriage. But today, I have a clear consciousness to understanding the nature of the crime that has been committed. I will always regret the part that I played in the victim's death, and I continue to ask God to forgive me of my unconscious actions that I played a part in through a dead and dehumanizing and incompetent mind, preventing me while still in an immature state of mind of basically being a follower that stopped me from thinking properly. But today I have matured into a clear consciousness to reason and to be logically consistent and mentally sound to think correctly for myself and on my own. I have changed my life and have achieved many corrective rehabilitative certificates to help me when I am released back into society to continue to be a positive citizen who is willing to practice and promote security, peace, and prosperity throughout life. I just hope someone is listening to this podcast and can help me in any way possible. I thank you all for listening. May you all be safe and blessed during this world epidemic.
Going from the breakdown of John's case, we continue to converse, and he advised me that his time in jail has been tumultuous as well. So from his allegations of abuse from the police department, now all the way up until his time being incarcerated. So I asked him more about it, and this is what he had to say. During my time of incarceration, I have suffered enormous physical injury as a direct and proximate result of the Chicago police misconduct. I spent over two decades of my life in prison for a crime which I'm innocent. Many of times I've woken up with the reality not knowing whether I would even succeed in proving the wrongfulness of my conviction and incarceration. Over the course of these two decades of imprisonment, I've been separated from my family and children. I've lost the chance to raise, care for, and mentor my children who are now adults with kids of their own. I believe the Chicago police use my background as a crutch because I've been to prison before to just secure their conviction. The Chicago police use the very same tactics in other people's cases, including coercion and manipulation of eyewitnesses in order to maintain false eyewitness identification, coercion and manipulation in order to influence witness testimony, fabrication of evidence, concealment of exculpatory information, and the use of other tactics to secure arrest, prosecution, and conviction of a person without regard to his actual guilt or innocence of the offense. The City of Chicago established practices not tracking and identifying police officers who are repeatedly accused of the same kinds of serious misconduct. Failing to investigate cases on which the police are implicating or discharging people with a wrongful offense, but failing to discipline officers accused of serious misconduct and facilitating a code of silence within the Chicago Police Department and have violated members of the public civil rights and caused innocent people to be charged with serious crimes with without fear of adverse consequences. Wow. Like, I just need to take a moment because this story, this breakdown, this analysis just brings so much to the light. Like, so I'm a very spiritual person and I believe um, my grandmother's very spiritual also. And one of the things growing up, when, when my grandmother would tell me no, I wouldn't do it. Because I knew if my grandmother said don't do it and I still did it, something wasn't going to go right. And I just think back to the moment in the story when John presented the fact that his father was like, hey, you know, go home. Come out there hanging out with them friends. Ain't nothing good and I don't like your friends anyways. And then this. And then this happens. And we have a crime committed. We have a <laughs> plethora of accusations and factors that weigh in and again my favorite question you all know beyond a reasonable doubt so john says that he signed the, the pictures and he signed some blank pieces of paper as he was told he would be able to go home then in turn we find out that these what were once blank pieces of paper now turned into a whole confession. Then his friend told on him too. His friend said that John was the one who did it. So I'm like, here we have John trying to be loyal. Based on his story, he's trying to be loyal to the person who committed the crime. And then when they go and talk to this individual, this person says, oh no, he did it. So now, street loyalty turns into 
I guess we want to say the adverse and there's no loyalty. You know, there's an old school saying there's no honor amongst thieves. So is it just there's no honor amongst criminals? Because now the person is saying that you did it. So who you allege did it is now alleging that you did it and now you're the prime person. And here we have 20 years gone. Oh, I am just in awe. Of this story. I am in awe of it all. I thank Mr. Hudson for allowing me to share his story and being so open with the factors and what he has endured and what he went through during this time. Um, for those who may be interested, John Hudson is ID K as in King 52602, Danville Correctional Center, 3820 East Main Street, Danville, Illinois, 61834. Listen, if you got questions, Mr. Hudson will have answers. I want to know. I want to know a lot. I just, I think I'll have to do a follow-up to this one because this one just kind of spins in a circle. It spins in a circle. It's one of those spins that you can't get control of, but you haven't hit the wall yet, but it's spinning. But Mr. Hudson shared a lot, and you can definitely tell based on how the story was shared, this came from a place deep within. Thank you, Mr. Hudson, for allowing me to share your story. Let me know what you think. What do you think of this case? Um, again, the case of John Hudson. Hit me on Twitter at Let's Talk Murder. Instagram or Facebook at LTMWDK. Again, that's Twitter, Let's Talk Murder. Instagram or Facebook, LTMWDK. I'm Diamond Kisan, and we've just talked murder. Until next time, stay safe and never be afraid to talk murder.